So this is the eighth week of this series. And before I dive into that, I'm going to read a passage that's going to be uh, what we're going to stick to probably quite a bit this morning. It's in John chapter 12. Then Jesus cried aloud, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me should not remain in the darkness. I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them. For I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who, ju- who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word that I have spoken will serve as judge. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father has sent, who sent me has himself given me a commandment about what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I speak, therefore, I speak, just as the Father has told me. So our, our uh, phrase today is just from, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So thence is from the presence of God, from the throne room of God, from where God dwells. It's called heaven. He's going to return from that place to the earth to judge. And not, uh, he's not just going to return, but he will return, but he will come to judge the quick and the dead. So um, I'm going to be focusing not so much on the return of Christ, and there's, there's lots of that throughout the New Testament. There's a lot in that phrase. There's a lot to talk about just there. Um, I'm going to be focusing a little more on the judgment part because the judgment is, is following the return part. And I just think it's, it's just where I felt led to go um, this week. So when we, we talk about judgment, there, you know, when you're a kid in church, especially below the age of 12, things really stick with you. They, they really, uh, you plant seeds that just stay in your heart and your life. Even when you're a teenager or a young adult, you may stray away from it, which a lot of people do. That's why Deuteronomy says, you know, train them up, your child up in the way they should go, and then when they're old, they won't depart from it. That, that many times, children that were raised in the church may stray, but they'll return. And parents, if you have a child that's not practicing their Christian faith right now, you need to know that um, almost 100% of the time, those children return to their faith based on one factor. If you and your spouse and or your spouse continue on in your faith in God, in your relationship with God, if those parents continue in church attendance, those children eventually come back because just simply on your example, that studies have shown that. But so it's so vital what we teach our kids when, when they're young. And that's why something like vacation Bible school is so important, right? Um, that you're planting these seeds forever. And, you know, it's fascinating to me that in Eastern European countries that were formerly under communist rule, um, they would have state-sanctioned churches. You could read a Bible. But they would throw you in prison if they caught you teaching children the gospel of the Christianity. Because they knew if you got to people young that they couldn't overturn it. I mean, isn't that interesting? So it's so critical what you learn when you're young. And when I was young, I grew up Methodist, went to a Methodist church in Georgia. Then uh, when we moved to Goldsboro, I went to a, we went to a Baptist church for a few years. There's a few critical things I learned at that Baptist church. Um, I remember we'd always have these Wednesday night meals, right? It's like the thing. Uh, they have yeast rolls, so that's a win. And, you know, Baptist churches all smell the same. I, I don't really understand that. But they all, think about it. They smell the same. Methodist churches smell the same. I, it's really bizarre. That's, a, that's just a side note. But Wednesday night dinner, as they call it, um, you know, it, it was, this church was big. They had hundreds of people, a big buffet line, and all these people. You sit with people you don't know, you know, and, and have and eat together. 
And I was nine years old, and I'm sitting at this long table, and I've got a big piece of fried chicken, I got some potato salad, I got my yeast roll, like, it's going to be a good night, like, this is going to be great. And I have a plastic fork in my hand, and, and I'm, just, I'm just digging into this chicken, I'm just, I'm just, I don't understand physics yet, I'm just bending that fork back, I'm just really getting into that chicken. Now, in 1988, there was uh, what I would call a hair epidemic uh, in the United States. The girls had the bangs and the claw and the perm. And the women, a lot of the women had what we call like the hair helmet, which is like a teased, boof situation. You could smell like Aquanet and, and a white rain everywhere. Even the guys rubbed the comb over and, you know, it's true. I mean, you couldn't move this hair. I mean, this hair was going to be there for a while. And I'm sitting there and I'm digging this chicken. I'm bending that fork. And I'm just, uh, I'm gonna, and I catapult a piece of chicken. <laughs> Cross the table. You're at one of those moments in your life where everything just slows down. You're like, no. And you see it. I saw it. Leave my fork. No one else noticed. No one else saw it around me. And there's a woman sitting across from me. I don't know who she is. She's having a conversation with a woman next to her. She's eating. The chicken lands directly on the hair helmet. No one saw it. She didn't even know because of the, the buffer. It was like a nest for the chicken. And I did what any nine-year-old boy would do. I picked up my plate and I walked away. <laughs> you know, in the front of the Baptist church, there's three chairs. There's always three chairs in the front. And no one ever sat in them. They were always empty. I was like, is that where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sit? Is that like you're saving them a seat? We'd also read the Apostles' Creed. Every, every Sunday we read the Apostles' Creed in that church, like we do here in the sanctuary. And I always got tripped up on the line, he shall come to judge the quick and the dead, because I thought, oh man, I'm kind of fast. Like, I'm, I like to run. I'm kind of quick. Is, I'm in trouble. Don't, I need to start walking with a limp, maybe. I don't, I don't know. I don't, want him to, I don't want to get judged. But we know that, of course, quick means alive, that Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. Now, the, the judgment of God can sound kind of forbidding, sort of like you're look, being looked down by a, a judge from a bench. He's staring down his glasses at you. But, but in reality, Jesus repeatedly says throughout the Bible that he's gonna, he will return. He's going to return, and he's going to judge the living and the dead. And it's so, it's so prevalent in Scripture, that's why we see it in the Creed. That's why all these things show up in the Creed, because they were in Scripture repeatedly, and it's a foundational truth. But a lot of people, we don't want to hear about judgment, especially... Uh, I know a lot of Methodist clergy that will never preach about it or talk about it because they think it sounds, you know, primitive or dangerous or somehow smarter than that. Uh, but in reality, you need a divine judging God because without a, the, the, the perfect justice of God, there really is no good or evil. There's no decider of things. It makes perfect sense that in order for there to be order in the universe and in all reality, that we'd have to have a perfect just judge to determine right from wrong and Jesus says these critical words in verse 48 that I read earlier the one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge and on the last day the word that I've spoken will serve as judge so he's making a few things clear here he's saying that the first time I've come I've not come here to judge I've come here as a prophet the prophet to speak my word into this world and let people hear it, this is here and now, 
And what you do with that will determine how you are judged. So the word I speak is the judge. I've not come to judge, but he will return again and do it. It's pretty, pretty clear. Then in, he's also he's saying there's a judge, it's my word, and secondly, that there is a last day. That history is not cyclical, there's not some sort of reincarnation loop. But that it, there is an end, and at that end there will be a day of recreation, of renewal of all things. Heaven and earth coming together. Is, and, and so that's our ultimate hope, but that there is an end to time as we know it. Uh, and then in John 12, he also contrasts, he talks a lot about the light. The light has come into the world, into the darkness. And he's contrasting a positive image like light with what we would say is a harsh word like judgment, sort of saying, without the judgment of my word, uh, people are in darkness. So without judgment, we would, we would be in darkness. Because, so, you know, imagine if you break the law and you go, into, you go to court. You don't have to raise your hand on that one. I, I don't want to embarrass anybody. <laughs> but, you know, if you're in ministry long enough, I've written letters to judges, I've gone to courtrooms, I've been a witness for people, you know, that you get called on. Um, now imagine if you go into a courtroom and there's no judge. There's just attorneys. There's just lawyers hashing it out. There's no ultimate decider, mediator. There would be total chaos. It would just be opinion. And it would, it would, it would probably devolve into majority rule. It's like, well, we have more people on this side than yours, so we win. You know, there would be justice would never be served. There would be a constant state of injustice, of trying to really destroy dissent and squelch the other side. There would be no mediator between the two. So for all the people that find that notion of God as a holy judge as repugnant or offensive, uh, you know, that say, we don't need a judge, let's take in God we trust off the money, let's take the Ten Commandments out of the courthouse, you know, all that sort of thing, Really, you really want to do that. Be careful what you wish for. You don't want to judge. You don't want any place of authority or determining right from wrong. The great irony is that the many people in our culture who, who demand justice, which I think is a good desire deep down that God has given us, it is rampantly flies off the rails in more and more situations I hear about. But the, the thirst for justice is good the same people that cry out for that, many of them don't believe that God is a holy and righteous judge. And you can't have it both ways. See, because with you, there can be no justice without a judge. So dismissing a judge, God as judge, may sound liberating. But without the judge on the bench, really everything is meaningless. Life is meaningless. You, you do it at the expense of having no in, of having constant indecision and constant injustice. So that's the great irony of it. Of true confession, my wife and I love watching HGTV. We like, I love our renovation shows. It's just sort of our thing. And there's a show called Unsellable Houses, where, um, yeah, someone watch this? Okay, cool. Um, where they have a big ugly house and they can't sell it. And they bring in these two sisters who say, this is not good, you need to fix this and this. And then, of course, the house sells for way more money. Now, this one homeowner had this really ugly wall in their living room, and it was like fake stone or something. It had been like macrame or like plaster. I mean, it was not good. And the sisters were like, well, what's up with this wall? And they said, well, we thought a, a potential buyer might, you know, might, might like this, you know, sort of an accent wall. And, 
And, uh, and the girls, the, the sisters say, oh, really? Well, uh, how's that working out for you right now? <laughs> is it proceeding in a sale? No. And for people that say God is not a judge, really? Okay, how's that working out for you? How's that working out for our society and our culture? How's that working out for the United Methodist Church right now? It's not. When we say that God is not, uh, not a judge. Because in reality, without believing that God is a holy and righteous judge, it's really the only stopgap in the human heart when we realize that we're not the judge, that there will be ultimate justice served one day. It's the only thing that stops something like vengeance. Like, I had a friend in college whose sister was like murdered and it was awful, and a member of their family wanted revenge. They wanted to go and kill the person that had done it. And on on your fleshly, carnal level, I get that, right? I understand that, of course, but my belief that God is a holy and righteous judge, he was gonna perfectly deal with that person one day in a way that when you hear the verdict, you will go, okay, his justice is that perfect that when you hear it, you will have full understanding. It's, it's the belief that God is a holy and righteous judge is what can stop things like that from occurring, to realize that there is a judge, and it's not you, and it's not me. So if God is going to judge the world, then on what basis will he do so? Scripturally, we see two words, really, heart and knowledge, that He's going to, God's going to see our hearts, God sees our hearts, and also with what we know or don't know. The first is the heart. Your heart is not your physical organ, but your, the seat or the source of who you are. It's the place from which your motives come, uh, the place from which who you are as your identity as a person comes. Um, so your heart is, is the part that God sees. First Samuel tells us that the Lord sees the unseen, that man looks at the externals. Man judges usually unfairly based on how people look or what they have or don't have. But the Lord looks at the heart. He sees the unseen. He sees the motives. He sees our thoughts. He sees all of those things. He sees our hearts. So when, when God looks at our motives and our hearts, it's really the only way that's fair to have that fair judgment that when he sees us for really truly who we are deep down. But then you look at Matthew 24 and 25, which I recommend you read it, read on your own. Jesus teaches extensively about his return and the judgment. And when you read that, it seems like Jesus is saying, he's, we're being judged on our works, right? You got the sheep and the goats. Sheep, you visited me when I was sick. You clothed me when I was naked, etc. Goats, depart from me. And you have this, it seems like, well, are we saved by our works then? By what we did or didn't do? And then yet on Romans chapter 3, you see the Apostle Paul saying, no one's good enough to earn their salvation. So you have these two things that seem incompatible. But what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25 is, he's looking at the works of people's lives because the works point to the heart. The, The works, God, he's looking at the fruit because it's not the works that save us. We're not saved by, we're saved purely by the grace of God but it's the works that point to the orientation and desires of your heart. So if your heart is self-serving, self-righteous, self-reliant too much, there of course will be a difference in how you live and what your motives are and what your desires are and, and what your choices are. And God can see that. So, but if you're a Christian, we of course, as you know, we're not saved by our good works. 
but we are saved for good works, amen. I mean, we're sort of saved to do those good things that become natural and easy and effortless and honestly joyful when we do them. The people that have served this week at Vacation Bible School are a great example for that. But God knows that out of the overflow of our heart, as Jesus would say, our mouth speaks. Out of the, pl- the orientation of your heart, you, you can hear the indication of where that is, your heart is on that day. Out of the overflow, your hands move. Out of the overflow, your wallet is opened or closed. Out of the overflow, your legacies are created. And God sees all of that. So I know you're thinking like me, you're like, oh man, if God, I'm in trouble. <laughs> well, we'll get to that. It seems, it seems like a dilemma. Secondly is knowledge. Look again at verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. On the last day, the word I've spoken will serve as a judge. Uh, a big stumbling block for people uh, who aren't, with people coming to faith is, well, what about all the people that don't know Jesus? When they die, do they go to hell? And for one, none of us are God, so I don't know. But I can err on the side of saying, Jesus is saying here, the word I've, what, whether you've received this word I've spoken to you or not, God will know. For people that are ignorant of the love of God and who Jesus, are, who Jesus is, God is perfectly just in everything he will do, and then he will be perfectly loving and merciful in everything he will do. It doesn't seem fair, of course, that God would judge the world and those who don't know Christ. I would agree. I think that doesn't sound like justice. They, but we will only be judged according to what we know. Of course, when he says, my word will judge you, it's a metaphor uh, that he has been given all authority to judge. So if you have zero knowledge, God's going to deal with you mercifully and loving and, and with perfect kindness. I truly believe that. If the, if the golden rule is all you got, then that's going to be raised up before you on the last day that he will hold you in account. Basically, did you do what you knew? Did you do what you knew? Because look at these words of Jesus in Luke 12. There's all these things he says about the end of time that we just never talk about. But he spoke with such authority. Things like this. Nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered. And nothing secret that will not become known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered behind closed doors will be proclaimed from the housetops. How can any of us stand under that? People, people that are on Twitter, you're in serious trouble. If you're on WhatsApp or just direct messaging people, you think you're just Snapchat? You think you're so secret? You think God doesn't know? Of course he knows. And Jesus says here, whatever you've done in secret, it will be known. Light will shine on all of it, and we will be held to account. As Jesus said in the New Testament, for every idle word we speak, we don't talk about that enough in the church either. That's why Paul writes things like, hold every thought captive. Now, we're not saved by our works, but he's saying, walk in in holiness with the Lord. Let there be no dirty talk and coarse language and all that sort of thing, because it's an indication of your heart, and God wants to give you a new heart, a clean heart. So, So many people live and we act and we speak as if we will never have to give an account for anything we've said and done. And God's not trying to steal your fun, but he's actually trying to make you holy. So it's for our good that God is our judge. But these words, how can any of us ultimately stand? Because we've all have said things in secret. We all have gossiped. We've all said harsh things to other people and to their face. I mean, you know, we all could tell stories. 
So if there is a judgment day, what hope is there? If there isn't a judgment day, as some people wish there wasn't, it doesn't solve the problem of the human condition. On the other hand, a lot of denominations will oversell, overpreach the judgment of God and create cultures of fear and toxic sort of violence and end time stuff and, and all that, and that's not good either. But if you never teach the judgment of God, it takes the, the teeth out of the gospel. It presents a cheap grace that's worthless and doesn't lead people in sanctification. So left to our own merits, we have no hope if there is a judgment or if there isn't. But we have to hold that in one hand and the other remember that God is love, that God is merciful. God has patience with us. He's perfectly just. God desires for no one to perish. So Jesus provides a third option. When he went to the cross, that is, his, that is our judgment day. On the cross, he took your and my judgment on himself. That is why it's such good news. So like in the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were told, put blood on your doorposts, and the wrath and the judgment of God will pass over you. It's the same principle. When we have the blood of the lamb over our lives, the judgment of God will pass over you. See, Christ already had the judgment day for us. In the moment you've given your life to Christ, God, doesn't, God looks at you and he doesn't see your sin anymore. He sees his son enthroned on the heart, the throne of your life. It's really what we call an imputed righteousness where God says that you go to God and you say, God, by faith I receive this gift of your son. I, want to, I need eternal life. I need a new heart. And, God, and by faith, and then God says, I will, I will put the righteousness of my son upon you. I, will take you. I, I took the judgment for you. So Christ is the only, so when he says, I am the way, Christ is the only way through the judgment. He is the pathway to eternal life, to get a new heart, and that could lead to good works. Plenty of religions have stern, distant judge type with God, like Allah and Islam, and he's a distant God figure, he's a stern judge. Christianity offers a God who took the judgment on himself. He's the judge and the sacrifice, and let that sink in. So look at these words from the, from the Bible that back this up, Romans 6.10. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. In the life he lives, he lives to God. 2 Corinthians 5, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Old Testament, written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah the prophet wrote these words that are definitely about the Messiah. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So this is why the Apostle Paul could write with such confidence and really joy in Romans 8.1. It's really good news now. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those of us 
you put your faith in Christ, you're, you're, really can say there's no judgment for those. It'll, it will pass over you. It's a pure gift of God to your life. The first time Christ came to earth, as I said, he said, I've not come to judge the, the, the world. In John 3, he makes that clear. He says these words. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, is not judged. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one only son. This is the verdict, he speaks, as the ultimate judge. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. So Christ is going to come again based on words and words like that that he's already shared and spoken into the world. People will be held to account on what we do or do not do with that. And God desires all people to come into the light. Very simple. A simple childlike act. Jesus said, it is so simple, a child can understand it. But when we get older, we get to be adults. We start to tune things out. We think we're smart. We think we're too busy. God says, come back to me like a child. Come back to me with open hands. Because when Christ comes again, he will come. And he will judge the living and the dead. But hear these words of Jesus and be encouraged by them as we close. Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment, but is passed from death to life. Purely the grace and gift of God. Let's pray together. Lord, what astounding words that are in your word that that encourage us, that remind us, Lord, that yes, you will come to make all things new. You will come to set things right because that is ultimately, God, who you are. But you don't want anyone to perish. You want all to come to life. So Lord, we lift to you this time and pray, Holy Spirit, you do a work within us to assure within us that we can be children, sons and daughters of God, made new by your Spirit at work in our hearts and in our lives.